An interview with distributor Regina Erak on exporting your magazine. A reading by Lisa Kadain of her article published in Dementia Connections. And news on Creative Industries Week and upcoming professional development. That's on this episode of iHeart Magazines, the podcast from the Magazine Association of BC, sharing the love of making and reading West Coast magazines. Executive Director of MagsBC and your host for this podcast. Today, we will be discussing the pros and cons of exporting your magazine. My first guest today is Regina Erak of Erak Global Works. Regina has 25 years experience in global publishing and was a former international director at Future PLC. An international media licensing expert, Regina founded Iraq Global Works to provide international services to smaller premium publishers who do not have licensing departments. Welcome, Regina. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's a real honor to, to do this podcast with you, and I'm quite excited to talk to your audience about magazines. Thank you. What do you see as the most exciting export opportunities for Canadian magazine publishers? That's a really good question to ask because you hear so often that magazines are in decline, but that's really not true. And the best analogy is, is always to think about the bicycle and the car because the bicycle didn't stop existing when the car was introduced to the market. There are great opportunities in today's market. They are different to, to what they were before, but nonetheless, they are there and people are still reading and even more so since the pandemic. So that's all great news and allows Canadian publishers to make uh, more use of the export um, to other countries. A lot of publishers worldwide make a lot of money is areas like craft, anything that gives meaning to your life and, and fills your time uh, more purposefully. Anything for children has become much more of interest and can understand why, because they spent pretty much two years locked in. So parents were at wit's end uh, with juggling work and children in the same home, which, which really requires content to keep them quiet. The monothematic games that still do really remarkably well, anything related to Fortnite, Roblox, that sort of thing. When something sells millions and millions of games copies, then you need something in your hand because you're using the screen to play the game. That sort of thing still does incredibly well. Puzzles have done not only remarkably well throughout the pandemic, they have actually outperformed anything that they have ever sold before. And it's not very costly for publishers to produce. Anything around mind styling, anything that is popular psychology related, things that help you to sleep better, manage your hormone balance, better eating, a more balanced life. Mindfulness is a big, big thing. You can see from this list that the market has changed a little bit. It was very, very male-dominated. And since the pandemic, it's just gone completely the other way. And it's really female now. Oh, that's really interesting. Based on all this, what do you think prevents publishers from exporting their magazines? That's an interesting question because some publishers who have done this remarkably well have overcome these barriers. But I guess lack of experience and the cost of printing. 
because it takes you so long to get a magazine into another country because typically you would put them on the ship and then get there a month later than they would on the newsstand where your company is. By that point, you're completely at the mercy of your distributor. Not that you're not at the mercy of your distributor and your local market, but at least you're there and you can pop in and give them a hard time if you don't see your copy on the shelf. In order to do that well, you probably have to print quite a significant amount of copies. And in today's market with the paper costs, that's a consideration. The other thing is the sheer time lapse. In your own market, you have a certain closure window. Once you go abroad and you look at markets like Australia, for example, they have closure windows of 12 months. So what does it actually mean? It means you're sending an issue there. You're sending the second issue there, you're sending the third issue there, you're sending the fourth issue there, and it will take you about eight, nine months to even have an idea how much you sold. So that binds a lot of, of capital. And again, it might sound very, very negative, but it's really not because with a good partner and a good support network, you can overcome all that and have more security in what you're doing. And I think that's really the, the biggest point, understanding how the distribution logistical path works for export and then have good partners in place and they can help you navigate that journey and make sure that you get a lot of money out of it. One of the issues is that publishers maybe don't know enough about is copyright and licensing. Can you share a few tips around those? Sure. In Canada, because you publish in two of the biggest language groups and that just makes it so much easier than it would be if you were a publisher in Latvia. I mean, who in the world understands Latvian outside of Latvia? It's not really an avenue worth investigating for them. But if you have English-speaking content or French-speaking content, then a whole variety of avenues are opening up for you. And so there are certain things that you can put in place to make sure that you get the most out of that. You need to educate your editors and make sure that they understand about copyright, that they have the best possible right clearance they can have for a magazine. Because what an editor will do is you give them a little bit of, of extra money and they will pump it into the content and not so much into rights clearing because they are monitored on the sales of their magazine. But they need to have this mindset that they're publishing this for an international area. I have overcome that in future by just telling them, look, in that moment when I sell licenses or we export, you, by definition, become an international editor. And that makes them understand that that is really a big thing. It's a constant learning process because also people go, they don't stay in the company forever. And then you go over the whole thing again. And the way to overcome that is by having a dedicated person, if the size of the company warrants that, that deals with nothing but copyright and talks to the people like Getty and the contributors and sends out the paperwork and, and gets that back. And that will have an added benefit that you probably would pay far less for getting copyrights. Because if you have one person who negotiates that for you, by default, they will do a better job because they have economies of scale, which one editor on his one magazine won't have. Once you have your copyright sorted, it will give you more handle on the actual value of your content and also of your company. How many times are people buying magazines from other publishers? If you have your copyright sorted, you will get far more money for that. Another important aspect is to make sure that your content is actually international enough to be of interest to those markets. 
I often refer to a photography magazine that we did in the past for future when our editors were blessed. They were in Bath or London and they just took their camera and they photographed every Victorian building that we have, of which we had quite a few. And they make brilliant photos. But if you're in Singapore, you want to see a temple once in a while. The content needs to be relevant for an international audience. So make sure that your editors have this mindset and don't think local, but act global. That leads me to my next question. What should magazine publishers know about the European market in particular? There's a lot of countries in Europe that people in in the Americas might not be so used to because all these different countries all speak their different languages. So there's a lot of markets to tap into. And what you will find if you send export copies You will probably focus on the big countries, but a lot of people speak English. And, you know, I mean, you go to the Netherlands, it's a small country with not even 15 million people, but they all speak English. The least educated person in the Netherlands will have a good command of English language. So there's a a readiness to just read anything in, in English language, just like they would in Dutch. So we have a lot of small countries, but a high degree of, of English comprehension in Europe. We have shorter closure windows, and they can be anything from one month to three months, which sets it apart from Australia, for example, or America, indeed. And that allows you to be much, much faster in your decision process. If you send something to the UK, you will know pretty much four weeks afterwards, or even 10 days, what it has sold, because we have EPOS data, you know, the scanner data that people go through when they go through the checkouts distributors make that available for publishers and they give you a sales forecast so you're not binding a a lot of money in printed copies for over a year until you finally know what you've sold and that's a very very interesting aspect of allowing publishers to get into the European market. That's really Um, fast that's (laughs) impressive. Yeah but you need to understand that the UK for example if you want to go into that market it requires retail budget so you have to pay your way into the shelves And that might be a deterrent at first, but again, a good distributor um, knows this and have done this for many years and they have schemes and they will help to make sure that the cost is not going out of control. If you look at Spain, for example, they need to have large cover mounts and everything is on A3 and has books and videos and anything that you can think of because their landscape is such that they sell through kiosks and then they build that on the street almost so it needs to be eye-catching. Germany is really, really interesting for many publishers because it has freedom of press. And that means that a distributor cannot turn your product down. So they have to put it out by law. Only if it then doesn't sell, the retailer has the right to say, no, I don't want this anymore. But he has to put it out. There's no need to pay yourself into the shelves. Of course, you might choose to do that because you want to market your product. But it doesn't require this huge upfront cost to get it out there. And that's attractive. A lot of publishers at the moment tend to go for the German market because it's so dead easy to get into it. And it's a huge market. France have another oddity. They can only keep magazines and bookazines in particular out for, I think, 54 days. So in order to get the full on-sale period of three months, which it typically has, they have to put it out three times. So they take it out, they pull it back, they take it out again, they pull it back. And they have the really hated 
committee paritaire that publishers have to deal with and they go through your content and they will then decide whether your content is newsworthy or whether it's actually a catalog which can be often the case with buying guides um, and according to whatever they feel your product is they will give you the VAT rate so it's not by law of a percentage as it is in most countries it is determined by the um, committee paritaire is it higher But, for guides then It tends to be higher, but there are ways around that. There are some very knowledgeable publishers and distributors who know how to navigate this unwanted issue of the Comité Paritaire. Um, but for a normal magazine, you shouldn't really have a problem anyway. These are oddities that, that publishers need to be aware of. Germany and UK are, are the biggest markets in Europe. England has over 60 million people and Germany close to 80 million. And the Germans read a lot. What do you feel are the main mistakes publishers make in exporting content or titles? I have seen a lot of magazines that, you know, look great on the cover, but when you actually flick through it, the content isn't suitable for markets abroad. I had a French magazine a while back and it was about parenting and it was really well done. I mean, it's almost one of those mind mindless magazines for how to bring up your child in today's world. The idea is brilliant. But they picked a lot of events surrounding that topic, but they were all done for, the, for Paris. So it was like 50% of the content. So that can't work abroad because somebody in Spain isn't going to Paris just to go to a parenting event in French. So again, it's, it's making sure that the content is international enough to be of interest. They also work with distributors sometimes that don't have scale or they're too expensive. For example, there's a really small distributor in the UK. They don't have the scale to have any negotiation power with these retail groups, which is what you really need. So your, your distributors, they need to be large and they need to know what they're doing. They don't cut copies back early enough in the process when things decline. There was a time when Sony PlayStation, they were just massive. These magazines sold over 400,000 copies and everybody was mega happy. But at some point there came a switch and then the magazine just literally fell off the cliff. And that was a shock to the system from literally one issue to the next. Things started migrating online and all of a sudden you didn't sell 400,000 but 100,000. So that's a lot of money. And publishers then somehow held on to this magical thinking that abroad that wouldn't happen. But it did because it was a global event. So if your magazine starts declining, assume that that will happen in overseas markets as well. Check your subscriptions. If your subscription's going strong, then that's okay. It's the market, the magazine is good. But if you see a decline there too, then cut back the copies. They take the magazines out there into those markets and then they don't print the local currencies onto the cover. And somebody in, in Spain wouldn't know what to buy. You know, if you go to Europe, make sure you have Euro prices on the cover. And make sure that the barcode scans also really important. You might want to consider to put cover run-on on the magazines and have a different cover for the local market, even though inside everything is the same. This is not an, a huge extra cost and it, it makes all the difference. Which Canadian magazines or publishers have done a great job of exporting their titles? At the top of my head, I can't really think of an awful lot of publishers 
who even go down that road of exporting. And I don't understand that because in England, that is commonplace. You take an English magazine and you pump it into Australia, you pump it into the US, you pump it into Canada, whereas UK, US and Canada is clearly the biggest market. And it generates 50% of your sale. So I have never quite understood why people don't go the other way. There is so much of an opportunity out there for good magazines. And when I looked at Canadian magazines, I could certainly find at least half of them where there's interest for that content. I would really like to encourage people to go and give it a try. That's slightly disheartening that they haven't actually taken advantage of this opportunity. What are the current export trends? It has changed a little bit recently with COVID and and all this pending war between Russia and the Ukraine. It has created far more interest into business-orientated publications because there is a news type of content, because people feel insecure and they need to know what's going on. This content goes up and down, but at the moment that's very, very strong. And it's, it's good to see that because it brings people back into the reading habit. Cryptocurrencies is, is certainly one of those things that especially the younger people take a greater interest in, but there's not really an awful lot around. That content that is around tends to sell quite well. Bookazines, mind styling, hobbies, craft, children. The market is changing, so anything that was low price is not that attractive. Anything that's a high price covers a coffee table style magazine is going to work anything that is related to Black Lives Matters, to climate change, to sustainability, to gender politics and all that has never been on the market before, but it is now and it's selling well. There's a lot of interest in that kind of content. What would you personally love to see more of that's not currently in the market? Anything that's related to health, well-being and and those those aspects about diet. So in particular, gut health, anti-inflammation, eat well to age well, that sort of thing, life enhancements, that's flying off the shelf, there's not much around. And what is around doesn't have international rights. Is there anything you'd like to add? If publishers decide to go international, there is more than one avenue to to be pursued. Look at your content, develop a 360-degree strategy, have a brand and milk it. There is so much to be earned from that sort of thing. You can have a magazine, you can have spin-off bookazines. Often they sell better than the main magazine. You can create little booklets, you can create newsletters from that. You can create events and all of that is sellable and all of that is licensable. You need to make your content sweat. And for that, you need to think beyond your own borders. But also, how can you package and bundle your content so that you can charge for it more than once? Thank you so much. Regina, for taking the time to speak with me today. You're very welcome. It was an absolute pleasure to be um, on this podcast. It's been a lot of fun and I hope people take some good advice from that. They can contact me anytime they want. That was Regina Erak, an international media licensing expert and the founder and managing director of Erak Global Works. If you want to learn more about this company, please visit globalworks.co.uk. Lisa Cadet.
lifestyle journalist based in Kelowna, BC. After spending seven years as a lifestyle reporter at the Calgary Herald newspaper, Lisa embraced the freelance life in 2011. Her writing has been published in BBC Travel, Best Health, Today's Parent, The Globe and Mail, and other publications. In between travel assignments, Lisa writes about food, drink, health, parenting, and special needs, inspired by her son who has autism, and applies her copywriting and blogging creativity to organizations such as Tourism Kelowna and Destination BC. Lisa is also the author of Shining a Light on Frontotemporal Dementia, an article which will be published in the next issue of Dementia Connections. Lisa, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for having me. Before we get to my questions, could you read an excerpt from this article? Yes, I would love to. John McKenzie was just 49 years old when his wife, Kathy, noticed he was slurring his words on the telephone. She then started hearing it in everyday conversations, but John didn't think anything was wrong with him. My husband owned his own automotive service center and someone actually called the Ministry of Labor to say he'd been drinking on the job because of the slurring, recalls Kathy. Other people would ask me, what's going on? Has John had a stroke? John's garbled speech combined with confusion, impaired judgment, and poor decision-making. He had gotten lost driving home from Toronto one night, a familiar commute, and his business was close to bankruptcy, prompted Kathy to seek out medical intervention. Their family doctor in Barrie, Ontario, brushed off her concerns, so Kathy began looking for a second opinion. Following an extensive search for a new doctor, John was sent for an MRI, and within a week, the couple was consulting with a neurologist. The MRI scan showed that John's brain had damage to its frontal lobe. After ruling out other possible causes, John received a diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia, or FTD, in 2016, six years after the onset of symptoms. He has a secondary diagnosis of primary lateral sclerosis, which is a low-spectrum ALS that can co-occur with FTD and impacts motor neurons. In John's case, his upper motor neurons that control the tongue are affected, and that accounts for his slurred speech. At the same time, his difficulty recalling words and putting together sentences are symptoms of cognitive impairment from frontotemporal dementia. It was a long journey to get help, says Kathy, who was relieved to finally have a diagnosis that explained John's unusual symptoms. Frontotemporal dementia is a terminal disease that impacts the brain's frontal and temporal lobes. These lobes are associated with personality, behavior, emotions, executive function, movement, and speech and language. FTD causes a progressive and irreversible degeneration of brain cells in these areas. The disease occurs when abnormal proteins aggregate in brain cells. In about 40% of FTD cases, these proteins clump together because of family history of dementia, mental illness, or movement challenges. But for more than half of those diagnosed with FTD, there is no known cause as to why the abnormal proteins accumulate. Researchers estimate that about 10% of all dementias are FTD. By comparison, Alzheimer's disease accounts for between 60 to 70% of all dementias. In frontotemporal dementia, one of the first identifying changes is personality and judgment, which may translate to going from very proper and polite to suddenly being very rude to others, for example, says behavioral neurologist, Dr. Tiffany Chow. A lot of families really feel like they can't recognize the person who has FTD because they are acting in a way that is so unknown or never before seen. 
In contrast, Alzheimer's patients generally hold on to their personality, but not their memories. Memory loss is rarely seen in frontotemporal dementia, says Chow. Another major difference between the two types of dementia is age of onset. While Alzheimer's typically strikes in a person's 70s, FTD usually begins in middle age, between 45 and 64. In fact, it's thought that frontotemporal dementia accounts for 20% of dementia cases in people under 65. Frontotemporal dementia happens early enough that people are still working. They may still be parenting young children, says Chow. It's really a crucial time in a person's life. Because it hits early and primarily impacts personality, it's often misdiagnosed as depression or even Parkinson's disease. As happened with John, it can take years to get a correct diagnosis. Thanks very much for that, Lisa. I'd never actually heard of this form of dementia, so found your article quite illuminating. How did you actually come to write this piece? Well, I've written a few articles for Dementia Connections over the past several years. The editor contacted me early this year to see if I was interested and available to write about it, so I said yes. What about frontotemporal dementia appealed to you as a subject? Everyone seems to know about Alzheimer's disease, um, but as it happens, a good friend of mine had recently lost her mom to primary progressive aphasia, a subtype of frontotemporal dementia. With primary progressive aphasia, it causes the gradual loss of a person's ability to speak, read, write, and understand what others are saying. John had also struggled with language, but his frontotemporal dementia also greatly impacted his personality, his mood, his judgment. It really was changing who he was as a person. So I found it fascinating that dementia can really vary from one kind to the next, depending on what part of the brain it's affecting. I also thought it was an important topic to write about since the signs of frontotemporal dementia are so different from Alzheimer's. So as happened with John, they might get brushed off or even go unnoticed or be mistaken for something like depression. I found it really, really interesting. So on that note, how do you actually tackle topics such as FDD that need specialist knowledge? That is a good question because I'm a writer. I'm not a behavioral neurologist. I would say before I even think about interviewing an expert or anyone else, I, I try to learn as much about the topic as I can. For this story, it meant reading all about FTD on websites, such as the Association for Frontotemporal Degeneration, um, as well as other articles that have been written on the topic. When I'm reading, I am thinking of questions to ask that will further my knowledge, you know, things that aren't coming up in the reading I'm doing that I can then turn to experts for more information. How about the families you feature? What do you keep in mind when writing about your interviewees and their family members suffering from FTD? There is still a lot of stigma surrounding dementia. There are a lot of emotions and embarrassment felt both by those with dementia and also their caregivers. It's still quite a sensitive topic to talk about and to write about. And it can be hard to find people willing to share their story, you know, to go on record. I was very fortunate that the editor had already approached the two families that I interviewed, and they agreed to participate. I try to be very sensitive when I'm asking questions. I give people enough time to answer or not answer if they so choose. And especially, you know, the newer the diagnosis, also the more emotional it is. And I'm always grateful when people do come forward Often they're coming from a place of wanting to raise awareness or wanting to help others who might be starting on the same kind of journey.
how did you approach experts such as Dr. Tiffany Chow to get them to assist you with your article? Well, again, I was really lucky with Dr. Chow. Uh, the magazine had already approached her and she had agreed to an interview. So I read up on her area of expertise so I could be sure to ask the right questions. Um, but if I don't have an expert source handed to me, I usually look to organizations such as the Alzheimer's Society of Canada or the Dementia Society of Ottawa and Renfrew County in Ontario to help me find the right expert who can talk about the topic. Other health stories, I've reached out to media contacts at different universities, and they can usually help me find an expert within the faculty. It seems intimidating, I guess, to talk to an expert on such a niche health topic, but I do find they're usually willing to help. Um, although it's been harder to pin them down during the pandemic, especially immunology or infectious disease experts. <laughs> oh, that's a real puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's been going on? <laughs> How much demand do you think that there is for articles on dementia out there? When I first was approached by the magazine to write a story about dementia, this was a few years ago, I just thought, oh my gosh, there's a publication that's dedicated to dementia. How interesting. But now, you know, as I've been researching and, and learning more about it, you know, as the population continues to age, the more people are going to get dementia diagnoses. So that will mean that there's more interest and demand for articles on the topic. I think this will especially be true for loved ones or caregivers. A common thread among caregivers has been really the lack of information or a blueprint for what they're supposed to do after the diagnosis. There doesn't seem to be a framework in place or navigating dementia manual that they get handed when they're in the doctor's office. So these caregivers feel alone in their journey. They're the ones having to make all the big decisions, especially if their loved one is quite cognitively impaired. It seems like each caregiver has to do their own research about support, care homes, therapy, and they also are managing doctor visits and medications and emotional support. So I think that there's going to be a lot of demand for stories that will address all of these issues and, and help people on their journey with dementia. That's definitely a good point. It's not like a one and done diagnosis. You're having to respond to dementia as it progresses. That's a really good point. The disease presents differently in every person along the spectrum, um, no matter if it's Alzheimer's or frontotemporal dementia or Lewy body dementia, they're all quite different. And so it is often a very individualized treatment plan and progression as well, which makes it even harder, right? It's not like when you're pregnant, you get a copy of what to expect when you're expecting, and, and your journey is pretty much the same as the next woman within certain parameters. What's your overall impression of the coverage of health reporting these days in the media? The world has been kind of hijacked by COVID coverage for the last two years, but as the pandemic is kind of winding down, I think that's starting to change a little bit. Recently, I've come across, you know, more general stories on everything from colorectal cancer impacting younger people to what it's like living with ALS. So we're starting to get more diversity in health coverage again. In terms of quality, you know, I think it really depends on the topic, the publication, the turnaround time. If you're writing for a newspaper, you have a much tighter deadline. Maybe you're not able to get all the sources you'd like to for the story, but you still have to write it. But then on the other hand, there's maybe it's a time cover story about mRNA technology and the people behind the technology and 
a team of reporters has had weeks or even months to do all the research, talk to tons of people, and then they have a huge word count. I think reporters are doing the best they can, given their time constraints. <laughs> Who specifically do you admire for their health coverage? A former colleague of mine at the Calgary Herald, her name is Leah Hennel. She is a photojournalist, and she was hired by Alberta Health Services right before the pandemic started. During the past two years, through images and words about her pictures, she's been able to convey both like the human side of the pandemic and the suffering of people in hospital with COVID-19, and also the toll it's taken on the healthcare workers. So I really have really admired her sticking with this topic and being so compassionate in her storytelling and in the photographs that she's taken and the relationships that she formed with these families while they were in hospital. She's also just recently published a pandemic photo essay and it's called Alone Together. And that was? Leah Hennel. That sounds, sounds very interesting. I'll have to look that up. Finally, what drew you to freelance writing? Well, it's funny, when I started writing, I was originally a freelancer, but it was my dream to get on staff at a publication. <laughs> I was at the Calgary Herald for seven years, and then I was ready at that point to write for a variety of publications again. I think for me, that's really been the appeal of freelancing. You can pitch stories to editors that are important to you, that you're interested in, or you can take on assignments that you never had even thought about. Since freelancing, I've written about growing up with a bomb shelter in my backyard during the Cold War, traveling with my son who has autism, and the connection between pregnancy and blood clots. Those are three completely different topics for three different magazines. Ultimately, it's the variety and also being able to work from home. Thanks very much for sharing your insights, Lisa. Thanks so much. I've enjoyed it. I have been speaking with Lisa Cadane, a freelance writer located in Kelowna, BC, about her work and her Dementia Connections article, Frontotemporal Dementia. Hi folks, welcome to The Beat. Buckle in, I've got a lot to tell you. The Canada Periodical Fund's Business Innovation Program opened for applications on April 1st. If you're considering applying for funding or working on your application right now, the sooner you submit, the better are your chances of receiving funding, provided you're eligible. So we really recommend submitting as soon as you can. If you need help with your application, you can book a grant writing doctor session with Alison McGrain. More details on that in just a few minutes. For more information on the Business Innovation Program, you can go to our website, maxbc.com, and you'll find more details in our news section. May 16th to 20th was Creative Industries Week. The theme for this year was BC Creates Stars of Tomorrow, with a spotlight on the emerging, diverse, and talented creators who, along with their established industry counterparts, form the constellation of BC's creative economy. After two years of virtual, we went back this year to an in-person demonstration of our province's creative strengths. MaxBC was there to represent our members and BC magazines in general at the Creator Showcase and Official Proclamation at the Legislature in Victoria. We also had a free subscription prize draw at the showcase. It was a great opportunity to speak with MLAs and industry reps and make connections with the wider BC creative industry. 
While in Victoria, we seized the opportunity to meet some of our members. Several of you based in Victoria joined us for food, drinks, and lively conversation. We spoke about recent issues, awesome interns and young magazine talent, industry changes, funding challenges, and brainstormed ways to come together to tackle some of the issues facing us right now. Lastly, I want to let you know about some exciting professional development events MaxBC has planned for June. On June 21st and 22nd, we have a great lineup of case study presentations on innovative magazine publishing projects, followed by a panel discussion with the speakers. You will be hearing from Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine, Janine Van Gool of Uppercase Magazine, and Melanie Ward of Canada's History, and they will share valuable learnings and takeaways from their recent projects. We also have a number of magazine doctor sessions planned throughout June. These are 45-minute one-on-one sessions with professionals who have expertise in specific areas and can provide personalized help with your publication. It's a great lineup. We have sales and revenue Dr. Michelle Allison, grant writing Dr. Allison McGrain, digital marketing Dr. Patrick Soriol, online engagement Dr. Lisa Manfield, and design Dr. Carly Hodgkinson. Depending on what you need help with, I recommend checking out our blog for details and booking your sessions as soon as possible. And please register for all of these events today. You can check them out at our website maxbc.com under professional development. And that's it for the beat. That's it for this episode of iHeart Magazines. If you want to learn more about what you heard, head to maxbc.com. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook at MagazinesBC, on Twitter at MaxBC, and on Instagram as well at MaxBC. If you like what you hear, please hit like or follow on your podcast app or rate our show. If you use Apple Podcasts, consider leaving us a review. It helps other folks find the show. I Heard Magazines is made possible thanks to financial support from the Government of Canada with additional funding provided by Creative BC. This episode was hosted by Sylvia Skeen and me, Asna Sheikh. Production guidance by Sarah Hoyles. Theme music by Yiri Semchishan of Coma Media. Next time on iHeart Magazines, we chat with award-winning writer Carly Baker about climate fiction, writer's block, and the role of magazines in a writer's life, plus a reading of her national magazine award-winning story, Outraged on Your Behalf. Thanks for listening.